So we're continuing on with the series that we started last week, and it's just a short series for four weeks in the um, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. And just as a reminder, next week we'll, we're going to take a, a small diversion. We have a, a guest pastor coming who's going to preach next week. He is a church planting intern at the Vine, uh, our mother church, and coming, and he's going to uh, be with us and preach as he prepares to, within the next year, um, go out and launch. Um, John 17, verses 1 through 5, that we're going to get to in a minute. But I've entitled the message, It's Time. And I think probably one of the most terrifying things that ever goes through a man's mind, and it shouldn't be the man, it should be through the mind of, the, of a woman, but in our weakness, in our gender, it's usually the man, and it's when a married couple are expecting their first child, and the water breaks, and the, and the wife turns to the husband and says, it's time to go to the hospital, and at that time, I don't understand, having five kids and experienced this, Deb, and I'm sure many of you were so calm and relaxed, and it was just, let's go to the hospital, it's just another, another day, and I was frantic, just hearing those words, it's time. If you're a husband, you undoubtedly have, on, at some point, usually Sunday morning, you have said to your, your spouse, as you're ready to go to church, come on, it's time to leave Let's go, it's time to leave. And the irony of that is it's usually the husband and the father who's sitting in his chair for 30, 40 minutes while mom is busy getting the children. Yeah, I see you shaking your head. While mom is busy getting the children ready, and it's the husband who's saying, come on, let's go, it's time, it's time to go, it's time to go. Um, that phrase, it's, it's time is a phrase that we're going to read in the passage. I'm not going to read that phrase, but something very similar, where Jesus says in a prayer to his father, the hour has come, which is just another way of saying it's time. And if you had put it into uh, vernacular of today, if you're an athlete, you would say it's game time, game, game on. Um, and Jesus probably wouldn't have talked that way, but he is highlighting in his prayer, the beginning is near, the end is near, it's time. Uh, let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into uh, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Father, again, we come before your throne of grace and, and ask that you as the great teacher would be present, that you would open our eyes and our mind and our heart and that you would fill it full of knowledge and grace. Father, transform us more and more into the likeness and into the character of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we consider this morning just snippets of this high priestly prayer, would you, would you lean into us with your spirit and give us a greater desire to spend more time before the throne of grace with you? Father, would you teach us through this prayer what it's like to have sweet communion with you. Lord, open our eyes and our heart and our mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and Jesus says in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in this beginning of this prayer, we see a prayer that Jesus uh, is concluding his time in the upper room with his disciples. He has just spent time teaching them and fellowship with them. He's spent time having a communion with them. And if you remember last week, we considered that last passage in John chapter 16. Jesus reminds them or tells them, for in this world you will have trouble. I know you say you believe in me and you have faith in me, but I need you to hold on because it's going to get worse than it is right now. And immediately after telling them that, Jesus goes to the Father in prayer uh, for, for his disciples and for you and I. Prayer is such a beautiful thing. If you study, if you're a student of the scriptures, and if you look at the Old Testament, there are example after example for us in the Old Testament <clears throat> and then in the New where we see sweet times of prayer. You see Eli praying for his children. We're told of the story of Hannah who is crying out to the Lord for her own child. Moses is continually praying for the deliverance for the people of Israel. You see this great prayer as Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and he's praying that God would be honored and glorified in him. You see Job praying for his friends and that God would do something in them uh, for their negativity. You see Jonah's praying for deliverance while in the belly of the whale. David's prayers of confession are absolutely beautiful. Those prayers of repentance that we can go back to and model. Um, And then you see Jeremiah who just laments and weeps and prays for his people, for God's people. In the New Testament, one of my favorite prayers is in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul is praying for you and I. And he's teaching us what the nature of prayer is. And we get to this prayer in John chapter 17, and it's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. And it's referred to that just simply there are three offices that you see throughout Scripture that are fulfilled. They're prophet, priest, and king. And we believe that Jesus is the climax, the ultimatum, the ultimate in every one of those three offices. Jesus is the high prophet. And a prophet's just a truth teller for God. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who's not necessarily the truth teller for God, but the truth teller who goes to God on behalf of somebody else. As a priest, you serve as as a mediator in between. And then Jesus is, is the ultimate high king. He is the ruler, the governor of all things. He's not just the ruler of his people, Jerusalem, Israel, He's the ruler of all things, of all nations. And so at the end of this, you see Jesus' prayer um, is coming before the Father, and we get a glimpse, just a glimpse of that relationship that Jesus enjoys 
in that inner Trinitarian relationship with his father. John MacArthur says this, and I, and I love to listen to John. Um, its words are plain, talking about Jesus' high priestly prayer. Its words are plain yet majestic, simple yet mysterious. They plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the inner Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son. And their scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history from election to glorification, including the themes of regeneration, revelation, illumination, sanctification, and preservation. All of those contained within this prayer. It's as if the veil is drawn back and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the holy of holies, to the very throne of God. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at it? That in this prayer, Jesus is taking you and I by the hand and he's bringing us into the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, the Father himself. In your bulletin, in the outline, uh, I placed three different words. And the three words are are glory, um, authority, and then eternal life. Uh, I I believe that's what they are. Is that true? Uh, Glory, um, authority, and eternal life. And we're going to look at all three of those concepts, but we're going to look at them in the context of two different certainties, two different points, two different truths that I want us to walk away from with this morning. And the first one, and these are not rocket science, they are... uh, I was a student ministries pastor for 19 years. Uh, my, my goal is to take things and put them as simple as I possibly can. And, and this is simple, these two points. Point number one is simply this. It's the certainty that is the gospel is not about us. And when I, when I read these first five verses in this high priestly prayer, I immediately is struck with the gospel is not about us. And we live in a day and age and in a culture, even within Christianity, where we make everything about our three favorite people, me, myself, and I. We want to turn everything into, it's about me and how am I going to benefit from it? And we're reminded the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. And we see this in the first words here where Jesus says the hour has come and he's referring to us about something that's going to take place with him. Again, it's for us, but it's not about us. The hour has come and it's what, it is the unfolding drama of redemptive history has reached its apex. In our circles, we like to talk about this, the already but not yet. The kingdom of God is already started It's here. We enjoy the benefits of the kingdom, but there is so much more to come. And when he says the hour has come, that that his death is coming, and then the resurrection, and then his eventual glorification, it's the apex of what he was sent to do. And last week we looked at what he was sent to do, and it was to come and to lead lead a sinless life, to lead a perfect life that you and I couldn't do, and then to die on the cross. And then Jesus says in the text to go back to the Father. 
And so he's saying here, the hour has come. Plans made in eternity past were finding their culmination in time. The hour had come in which the Son of Man would offer himself as the perfect and the only atoning sacrifice for our sin. The hour had come when the sinless one would be made sin for believers that they might become the righteousness of God. The hour had come when Christ would cancel your debt. The hour had come where Jesus would for all eternity take your debt and no longer require sacrifices to be made over and over, but as the ultimate high priest and the ultimate sacrifice, the hour had come where it would be done once and for all. Um, When Jesus says the hour has come, what are, his, what are his next words? His next words are in verse uh, 1. Father, because the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And if you're a student of Scripture, you see over and over, and we're just going to look at uh, just a couple verses here. You see over and over that Jesus mission as he lived here on earth yes it was to lead a perfect life yes it was to die a death that you and i couldn't and don't have to but more than that his mission his will was to bring glory to the father and to do the will of the father verse four and five he said i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was seeking to bring glory to the Father by pointing people to his dad. And when you see the Spirit, the Spirit was all about seeking to point people to Jesus who was pointing people to the Father. And so Jesus is saying, please glorify me now as he once enjoyed before coming to earth. You know, the Westminster Confession, uh, if you if you grew up in the, the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, you've heard this probably hundreds, if not thousands of times. What is the chief end of man? Which is just another way of saying, what's our purpose? Why do we exist? Why do we get up out of bed every morning? In, in our, the fathers of our tradition just simply say, what's, what's your main purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So if you look at that Greek word, uh, what does it mean to, to, to glorify someone? It just simply means to honor, to praise when they, when they heard that Greek word, when Jesus said, "It's Father, please glorify me as I've glorified you. It means to honor someone. It means to praise someone. It means to take great delight in someone. It means to be well pleased and approve of. And to glorify somebody means to magnify uh, and or exalt. Jesus Desire more than anything was to be well pleased with, to glorify, to bring praise to, to honor his father's name. You know, when we think of that phrase and that term to glorify, 
it's a hard, it's a hard biblical concept on, on some level to wrap our hands around. I think until we put it into simple terms of, uh, we all know what it means to want to be glorified. Every one of us who are sitting here this morning knows what it's like to do something and you want to be praised for it. You want to, on some level, not, not maybe more than God, but you want to be lifted up and exalted. You want, and I want, men and women to, to speak highly of us. And when we do that, on some level, we are attempting to steal or redirect God's glory to us. Because we want it to be all about us. And we're reminded in this passage that the gospel is not about us. The gospel is not about us. And so you see in two verses, John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, he explained to the crowds, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then John 7, verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Did, did you catch that? Jesus is, is teaching his disciples to do the very thing that he himself wants to do, and that is seek glory of the one who sent you. If you have repented and placed your trust in Christ, if you, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, it's no longer about us. We're called, we're given this task of bringing honor and praise and glory to the one who has sent us. Um, I don't want to get political, but just to just to paint another picture illustration, take all those terms that we just said of what it means in the English language to glorify. And I think you could make a pretty fair case that perhaps our president is one who loves to be glorified, who loves to receive honor and praise and to be exalted. Um, And so do you. And so do I. We long for that when the gospel is not in us. John Piper is famous for uh, uh, several quotes. He's famous for an awful lot. But John Piper says a quote, and I love this quote, but I'm not sure I, I ultimately agree with it. And it's this quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I get it, and I love the quote, and I believe it. But if you just took out two words, the quote wouldn't be true. And if you took out the two words, in us, God is glorified even when we are disobedient. God is glorified even when people reject the gospel. But there is great truth to this, that God is glorified in us 
when we're most satisfied in him. And what, is, what does that mean? I think we're going to get to that uh, in a few minutes with the text. But John Piper also has another quote uh, that stung my heart, and it's this. If you don't feel strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It, did you catch that? If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God. It is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Isn't that a great imagery? You've long, you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. And we have all experienced that. In this particular text, he's not only wanting to glorify the Father and the Father glorify him, he's speaking of the actual glorification, the doctrine of glorification, the biblical teaching of glorification, when he says, I'm, going, I'm coming back to you. I've accomplished everything. And that doctrine of glorification for Jesus is when he goes back to the Father and assumes his rightful place at the throne on the right-hand side of the throne of God. For you and I, though, the doctrine of glorification is that at some point when Jesus returns, we will be made perfect. We will be transformed into the likeness of Christ, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of what he has given to us in all spiritual blessings that we enjoy as a co-heir of Christ. When you think about that... um, it's a, it's, a humbling, it's a humbling thought, this doctrine, this teaching of glorification. And, and as, as a reality is that that teaching within Scripture, that you will be made perfect, should what? Should serve as an encouragement. It should serve as a cup of cool water for our weary souls And what's interesting in Jesus is talking about his glorification and our glorification. He's doing so on the heels of what? In this world, you will have trouble. And he's reminding them that there's there's good news to come. He's reminding them that even though we're ill in the body right now, you're going to be transformed and you'll be made new to the nth degree. It will be finished. And so we're reminded in this first, um, this first takeaway, the gospel's not about us. It's about the finished work of Jesus and what he has done for us on our behalf. You see here in Romans eight eighteen, where Paul reminds us, For I consider that the suffering of this present time uh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Another way of saying that is it's going to get better. It's not always going to be like we experience in the world where you watch the news, it feels like this world is falling apart. And Jesus is is graciously in his prayer to the Father, reminding us as we're listening into this, it's going to get better. 
the, uh, the second certainty. The gospel is not about us simply second. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is not about us. It's about Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. In verse 2, in verse 3, you see here that we read earlier, since you have given him authority, he's referring to himself, talking to the Father. Father, glorify me since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The gospel is about Jesus because he alone has been given all authority. He alone is the one who stands before the Father with the right to rule in every aspect of our life. Uh, we see here uh, in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him whole, all things hold together. When Jesus went to the cross, that was the climax of him demonstrating his authority over the power of sin and then in the resurrection, the power of death. Even death itself submits uh, to his authority. You see constantly throughout the New Testament, and it's getting really warm in here, isn't it? Am I, am I the only one sweating? You're, you're not? Well, that's great for you guys then who are not. Jesus in the scriptures in the New Testament demonstrates for us that he has authority over sickness, over death, over the members, over the members of our body. And he says here in the passage, glorify me because you've given me authority over flesh. That means he has authority over our minds over our heart, over our eyes, over our ears, over our hands, over our feet, where we go. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge because the gospel's about me. And so I want you to just pause for a moment. I want you to think through um, what is it that I am not submitting to his authority what part of my body, of my flesh, am I still clinging to and holding on to? And I want to be in charge over, and then you fill in the blank. And we're reminded of these words in John chapter 8, verse, verse 11. And by the way, this story of Jesus, and he's coming to the, the woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, and they're about to stone her. That, that particular story is, is not in the earliest of manuscripts that were found. And so several people don't, they, they won't even talk about this passage but I want to read to you verse 8, what Jesus says to her, whether it was actually in the scriptures or not, it certainly is something that Jesus would have said and would say to us. And it's simply this, verse 8, and Jesus said, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus is the only one who has the right to say that to you and I. And when he says it, he's saying it with a sense of authority. Go and sin no more. 
you know, our natural instinct is to do what? It is to buck all authority. It is to push against it, to run away from it. And I come across a, 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 what I thought was a funny little story of, of a governor of the state of Massachusetts from 1953 to 1957. And it's a great example of where he wants to use his own authority to benefit himself and it doesn't work out very well. But sometime back in between 1953 and 57, uh, this gentleman, Christian Herder, was out on the campaign working hard all day trying to secure some more, nomin- or some more votes for himself. And at the end of the day, he went to a church picnic. It wasn't his own church, but he went to this church picnic uh, to, to work the crowd but he hadn't stopped for any meal that day, and so he was vanished. And so we're told in the story uh, that as Herder moved down the serving line, he held out his plate to the woman who was serving the chicken, and she put one piece of uh, chicken on his plate and then turned to the next person in line. And because he was vanished, he said, excuse me, uh, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman told him, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person, and that's it. But the governor stated, but you don't understand, I am starved. I haven't eaten all day. And the woman once again said, I'm so sorry, I have been told only to give one piece of chicken to every customer. Governor Herder was a modest and unassuming man, but he decided that this time he would throw a little bit of his weight around. And so he asked her, ma'am, do you, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state that you live in. And the lady responded, sir, do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken. Now move on. <laughs> That's us, isn't it? We look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, don't you understand who I am? Don't you understand that I deserve just a pass just today? Give me a break. Look at all of the good things I have done. And we do this tally in our mind and in our heart. And my good outweighs the bad. And so we end up with this sense of I deserve. And then you fill in the blank. And we're reminded in this text that the gospel is about Jesus. And the gospel tells us that he's the one who has authority over flesh. And and you need to know, um, as I have wrestled with this passage, one or two of my pet sins have floated to the top and they have been with me all week long. And I can tell you what they are. But they have been dogging me all week long with this sense of, I can't let go of it, but I want to let go of it. We're told in John chapter 10, uh, verse 28 and 29, that not only does Jesus have uh, authority over flesh, but he also has, in the next words, he says, I, you have given me authority over eternal life. And in John chapter 10, we're told, I give them, Jesus is speaking, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. This is such a veiled reference in scripture, veiled but yet not, of this doctrine or this teaching 
of election and of predestination. And some of you uh, who have not grown up in these circles, that may be a new teaching to you, but it is simply the teaching that it's the Father and I working together who decides who are going to be my followers and not. And in in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 6, we're told by the Apostle Paul, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When you look at those verses in Ephesians, it is so crystal clear that God has sovereignty. He has authority over even those who are going to be his children. I was teaching, going through this book of Ephesians with a a group of coaches when I was on staff with FCA, and they chose the book. They wanted to go through Ephesians, and they were all good, well, let's just say they weren't from our our circles, and they they approached the faith from a, a different interpretation. And we got to this chapter, and we read through it, and we talked about it for a couple hours And two of the gentlemen said to me, I've never heard this before. I've never read this passage in scripture before. And it just completely upset their apple cart. And so one of them went back to his pastor. He was so upset, he went back to his pastor that week and he said, I want to read something to you that I just learned in the Bible. And he read those verses. And then he asked the pastor, why in the last 10 years have you never taught this? Why have you never shared this? And the pastor kind of hung his head and said, because if I read that and if I taught on it, it would cause more questions than answers. And I just, I'm choosing not to. And we see in this high priestly prayer where Jesus is talking about, you have given me authority over eternal life, over those whom you've given me. They came from the Father. And if I could just say um, and hear this graciously, your salvation, my salvation didn't happen, as the old hymn said, because you decided, because you chose. That's a part of it. You responded to the gospel. You, you followed what, you were, what, what the Holy Spirit led you to do. But it was initiated by the Father and by the Son. Um, You see this throughout the whole Old Testament. This isn't new to us. You see and we accept the fact that Jesus chose the most unlikely of all nations to say, you're mine. And it wasn't because of anything they did. It wasn't any good. It was because Jesus simply, or the Father simply chose, you are mine. We see this um, throughout the New Testament verses in the book of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And, and, and one of my favorite verses is in Romans nine sixteen, where it says, and, and I don't have it on the screen for you, but it says something to the effect of uh, that God's sovereign over salvation and it depends on his mercy and not on us. 
This, this sovereignty of God, his authority over salvation, over eternal life, it shouldn't frustrate or confuse us. Well, then, then I, what are we, just robots? It, it should encourage us from the standpoint that if the, if the Spirit is working in you and if the Spirit's working in me, it's because the Father who created all things decided that he wanted to draw you to himself. And we could ask this question, what's not fair? What about all the people that, that he isn't doing that with? And, and, and I understand asking that question. I've asked it as well. But another great question to ask along with that is, why me? You can focus on why he didn't choose them. But maybe focus on why did he choose me? And, it, and we're reminded the gospel is not about us. It's about Jesus. This, this teaching shouldn't frustrate or confuse us. It should encourage us because even though God is sovereign over eternal life and salvation, he's also chosen that he wants to use us as his instruments of mercy as his instruments of reconciliation he's chosen you and me as broken vessels to take the the good news of his gospel to other broken vessels and when he chooses to water that seed that we plant it will bring glory to him and not us or not them so what do we do with all of this um, what, what, when, you, when you think about this, the gospel is not about us. The gospel is about Jesus. And you think about this teaching of glory and, and authority and eternal life. What do you do with that? And I just simply have two things that I, that I want to suggest that we attempt to focus on this week. And the first application is just simply this. How do you respond? You respond by submitting to his authority. We're told in the book of Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That is such great relevance for the pet sins that every one of us here this morning struggle with. And in this passage, we're, we're being nudged indirectly by him praying to, by Jesus, praying to the Father, submit to his authority. That looks like choosing those sins that we struggle with in using the words of Psalm 50 to go before the Father and to plead for deliverance from him and for help. God, in your position of authority who control all things, would you please help me? And as we're submitting to his authority, application number two, rest in your eternal life. Not just in the future, Rest in it now. And, and here's, here's what I want you to do, and this is so difficult, and it defies all logic within us. In the midst of your sinfulness, in the, in the midst of your inability to submit to his authority, rest in your eternal life. That means it's, that looks like reminding, my, reminding ourselves of the gospel that we proclaim to believe 
that Jesus knew long before he ever was going to uh, save us. He knew every sin that you would ever commit. And despite that, he still chose you. And if you've repented and if you've placed your trust in him, which is not a perfect trust, you've placed it in his finished work, then rest in your eternal salvation. Rest in your eternal life. And you know what the irony of that is? We look at that word as a passive word. And the truth is to rest for you and for me, that is an active verb. Stop looking at it as a passive. That means you make the conscious choice. I'm going to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Because of what he has done for me, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to stop in my head trying to figure out how to earn his favor. And I'm going to rest. Submit to his authority. Rest in his grace. Let me pray. Father, would you please help us? We can't do this. And so we plead for your mercy, for your kindness, and for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.